the word of God again. And Lord, we thank you for the book of Revelation. Um, it is such an exciting thing to be studying again. And as we delve into this, Lord, help us to understand your heart for us and to grow in grace and knowledge of our dear Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We pray in the Lord's name. Amen. All right. Well, just as a, a way to start our discussions tonight, um, what I'm going to give you is an overview of Calvary Chapel's view on the book of Revelation. And um, it may not be what you're familiar with, what you're more comfortable with, and that's fine. Um, but it is Calvary Chapel's views, and I share them. Um, so as we move through this, if you would, kind of save your questions, write any questions you have down, or try and remember them, and we'll cover those at the end, okay? All right, so we are in Revelation chapter 2. Now, chapters 2 and 3, of course, are the letters to the seven churches. And you might ask, you know, why seven churches? Well, Paul, uh, the Apostle Paul, also wrote to seven churches. He wrote to Rome and Galatia. He also wrote to Ephesus, uh, but he wrote to Colossae, Philippi, Thessalonica, and Corinth as well. And uh, though he wrote to some of them more than once, also seven churches. I found that interesting. Uh, the seven churches that we're going to be studying are all historical places. They are all in modern-day Turkey. I visited them. They're still there. <laughs> so you can still go and visit these sites. Um, the one in Ephesus is amazing. Um, when you go there, you get a sense of the magnitude of what that city used to be. Ephesus had the Temple of Diana, of course, one of the seven wonders of the world. It was an incredible, incredible sight. Uh, historians who saw and were alive during the uh, seven wonders of the world during that time stated that Di the Temple to Diana far excelled all the rest. It was known as the Jewel of Asia. It was a an incredibly prosperous and wealthy city. Um, it is a, a city that had one of the largest ports in the world at that time, capable of docking any ship uh, at that time currently built. Uh, Rome recognized it as a free, what they called a free city. Uh, it was recognized as uh, an incredible um, center for business and banking. It had the first World Bank there. They had um, monies from many different nations held in the Temple of Diana in their vaults. Uh, they had the world's largest library, 200,000 volumes of handwritten scroll and book. So it was an amazing place. It was a very urban city. Uh, you know, we, we tend to think of New York and Chicago and Detroit and all that, but. It was the New York of its day. It was the finance center, the culture center, uh, science, technology, everything was found at Ephesus. But the most important thing there, of course, was the Temple to Diana. Now, 
you'll remember in the book of Acts, chapter 16, 17, and 18, uh, during Paul's ministry there, that the uh, adherents to the Temple Diana, the folks who worshiped there, went pretty crazy when Paul began to uh, convert hearts. As a matter of fact, the Bible tells us that he was so successful that the entirety of Asia, I mean, all the known world, heard from this little church in Ephesus that we're going to study about tonight. Now, this was certainly written to these historical and, and churches that were existing at the time of writing, but this is to all churches at all time. I say that because we keep seeing the phrase, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says. That word says in the Greek is actually in what uh, Greek syntax is a perfect sense. It's a perfect present sense. So that the Spirit is saying is actually what it says there. Hear what the Spirit is saying to the churches. So I believe that we're going to find that there are different churches in every age that will fit the descriptions of each of these seven churches. Not just that, but it's also written to individual believers. I think that as we move through this, you'll see yourself in one of these seven churches. You'll recognize your own heart before the Lord. And uh, maybe it's tonight, maybe when we get to Pergamon or Thyatira or Sardis, or one of the other cities, you'll begin to see uh, a picture of who you are. Hmm. And um, as we get there, you'll have the opportunity uh, to do that comparison. Now, uh, it was written as a historical overview also of the various ages of the church. So, when I say the church, I mean the Church of Jesus Christ, not of Latter-day Saints, but the Church of Jesus Christ, founded upon Jesus with the Apostle Paul um, and the Apostle Peter kind of of paving the way, the 12 disciples, that church of Christ. So as it moved through the generations and moved through the centuries, there is a pattern that you'll see here of, of growth and change and metamorphosis to finally what it is today. I believe the church of Philadelphia. And um, we will move through the various stages historically as well. So tonight, we'll more talk about the apostolic era. Um, the church at Ephesus thrived from the time of Paul uh, being there for a couple of years. Remember, he opened up the school of Tyrannus and was teaching there for two years. As a matter of fact, at the end of that time, uh, we're told he had such an impact that the people who were formerly worshiping Diana brought their books and their scrolls and all their magic potions and piled them up in a pile and burned them all because they were so moved by the Holy Spirit and what they were being taught. Now, the word Ephesus means the desired one. And again, um, you know, you see it in the book of Acts. Um, it first mentioned in 16, but the meat of it's 18 to 20. And the, the church... Here, this letter to Ephesus here is about 30 years to 35 years after Paul's book of Ephesians, the letter to the Ephesians that he wrote. Okay? Much has changed in that time frame. Um, the church has gotten big. 
in 30 years. As a matter of fact, it's gotten massive in 30 years. Uh, churches do sometimes. People change in 30 years. I've gotten a lot bigger over 30 years, but the church has as well. And um, we're going to see that in each of these letters, we're going to have an introduction. And in that introduction, Christ is going to pull out a bit of the description that that John recorded for us in chapter 1 uh, from verses 1 to 7. And he's going to pull out different aspects of his nature, different parts of his pre uh, presentation to John to describe himself in the letter to that given church. We're also going to see a, uh, a commendation, rather, except, of course, to Laodicea. Uh, we're going to see condemnation come after that to all but one church. Um, and then we're going to see a prescription, how to get better, and a promise if they follow the prescription. Okay, so that pattern is going to be there in all of them. Now, the church was born into an extremely idolatrous area. You know, they didn't have to deal with some of the things we deal with today. They, uh, though they did have drugs back then, they weren't the street drugs we have today. But they had temple drugs. They didn't deal with pornography. But then again, they had a thousand temple prostitutes that roamed the city at night trying to find people. They worshipped Bacchus, Bacchus the god of wine, the god of partying. So many times, if they weren't drugged, uh, they were drunk. <laughs> so it was a very uh, riotous area. Um, now this is an area that Satan had a firm grip on, where spiritual battles were very harsh. Paul, realizing this, in Ephesians, wrote about the armor that they needed to put around them to protect their hearts and minds, to protect them from the onslaught that Satan would throw at them. And throw it at them, he did. Uh, Christians were burned at the stake in this city, and um, they were martyred gladly for the name of Christ. Their trials and tribulations uh, were every day just to survive many times, especially at the beginning. Now, as the city and the uh, got used to the Christians and as the Christians matured in their faith and once uh, Diocletian uh, left and died off and Nero died off and all these people were dying off all these emperors they came under the, the leadership of Domitian uh, Domitian was far more tolerant he and Trajan both far more tolerant of the Christians at that time allowing them to meet now he's if you were brought up, if you were a Christian, and you were brought before a magistrate, and you did not renounce Christianity, you were killed, yes, but they didn't go hunting you down anymore, at least. Okay, somebody had to denounce you publicly. If that happened, you were still killed if you didn't renounce your faith, but at least it had uh, subsided a bit. John, the Apostle John, who wrote this book, had been the elder at this time in the city of Ephesus for about 25 years until he was banished to the Isle of Patmos. Now he writes these words, of course, from that Isle of Patmos. And this is nothing more, this book, the book of Revelation, is usually, if, if I open up a book of the Bible, you say rightly that it is inspired by the Holy Spirit. Here, though I'm sure the Holy Spirit was involved, this is a dictation. This is exactly the words that the Jesus Christ spoke 
to John. So it is perfect in its presentation. Okay, It's exactly what Jesus wanted to get out. Uh, John had been the elder there for about 25 years, and he knew all the people in the church that we're about to read about. He had uh, ordained the elders, ordained the pastor there. He knew all the families involved. So he was very personally interested in what the Lord had to say, I'm sure, to the church of Ephesus. Now, with all that aside for a moment, let's begin to dig into this. So we're in Revelation chapter 2 um, and verse 1. To the angel of the church of Ephesus write, These things says he who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks in the midst of the seven golden lampstands. I know your works, your labor, your patience, and that you cannot bear those who are evil and that you have tested those who say they are apostles and are not. You have found them liars. And you have persevered and have patience and have labored for my name's sake and have not become weary. Nevertheless, I have this against you that you have left your first love. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the first works or else I will come to you quickly and remove your lampstand from its place, unless you repent. But this you have, that you hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will give to eat from the tree of life, which is in the midst of the paradise of God. So this first incredible letter is written by the breath of Christ in the hand of John. And it is written to a, a city, Ephesus, um, representing, if you will, the apostolic age. John, the last apostle, is still alive and writing these words. Uh, upon his death, that apostolic age ends. And we move into the next phase, the persecuted church, when we talk about Smyrna in two weeks. But here we're more talking about this church, the church at Ephesus. So we begin unto the angel uh, of the church of Ephesus. Now this word angelos or angelos we translate as angel. It doesn't mean and it, it even biblically there are many examples of it not meaning a, a spiritual being, but rather a physical being. Uh, when John sent his disciples to ask Christ uh, if he were the chosen one, they were called his angelos, his messengers. Many times when you see messengers mentioned in the New Testament, it is the word angelos. Now, of course, when we hear the word angel, our mind immediately goes to winged beings, fluttering about, saving us from all types of harm. Um, but that's not always its meaning, and it's not the meaning here. Here, it means the messenger of the words of God to the church of God, his bride, the pastor of a given church. So in, in the vernacular of God, they are his angels, his messengers. And I think it's something we need to remember when we speak evil of a pastor, regardless of what denomination, regardless of what church, 
that if this man is ordained of the Lord, and if this man speaks the words of the Lord, then we are actually rising against the anointed of the Lord. And the Lord doesn't like it when we touch his anointed, does he? He does not like it a bit. So, uh, this is then to the pastor of the church of Ephesus, Ephesus write, These things says he who holds the seven stars in his right hand. Now, he held in the right hand these seven stars, these, these glimmering ones, these angels, if you will. I believe this also refers to the pastor here. And I think that it's important to understand that the Lord holds these guys in his hands. He upholds them. Um, he empowers them. He gives them the words they need, the vision they need to guide their church. Uh, under the auspice of the shepherd who is Jesus Christ. Now, unfortunately, in many churches today, we see pastors and people who call themselves apostles and uh, elders and elder boards thinking that the church belongs to them. The church does not belong to man. The church is made up of people but it doesn't belong to people. It is the bride of Christ. It belongs to Jesus. He is the shepherd of the church. He is the leader of any godly church. Okay? So uh, we know then that it is God who holds these people in their hand, in his hand, rather, uh, who walks in the midst of the seven golden lampstands. So God moves, we already know from previous times that the lampstands represent the churches themselves. We are a light into the world. So he walks in the midst of our churches. The Bible says that whether wherever two or three are gathered in the name of Jesus, such as this place, right now he is in our midst. He may be here. He may be there. He may be in your lap. <laughs> All right? So but Jesus is among us, and Jesus moves and enervates or energizes the teaching and the worshiping and the singing and the praying and all the various aspects um, through his Holy Spirit. He is present among us, right? So he moves then among the lampstands. Now, this is interesting to me that the pastors... Uh, we were told not to seek that title too easily because pastors, whether you know it or not, are held to a much higher accountability, the double accounting, if you will. They're not just held for their own righteousness, for their own teaching and training, but also for yours and mine. Pastor Alan Disbro of our church is held accountable to Jesus Christ for what happens in our church for the teachings that he gives at our church, for the worship that is played during church services, for the prayers that are offered. He is responsible for the treasury, for the monies that are collected, for their dispensing, all the various aspects. Whatever pastor of any given church is responsible before Jesus Christ for all the aspects of that church, okay? And it's a huge responsibility. The business of the minister is to hear for the church Many and then communicate what he hears to the people. Many pastors, many elders, many uh, deacons, if you're a Baptist, if you're a good Baptist tonight, 
um, do this thing called shepherding, where they overreach into a person's life, uh, where they try and govern various aspects of uh, the people in the church and try and govern their life uh, wrongly. Um, but the pastor is to receive the word from the mouth of the Lord, deliver it faithfully to his church, and to see that it is accepted and observed. Um, and I love verse 2. It says, I know your works. Just the intimacy of that statement. God knows all the things that you've done for him. Don't ever think that you've not know, gotten credit for giving someone a cold glass of water in the Lord's name. You can go to the book of Matthew, of course, and read about it there. But the Lord knows those who are his, and he will reward us. We're told about that in 1 Corinthians um, chapter 3, verses 9 through 15, the believer's reward, the Bema seat judgment, that, uh, you know, all the, all the things that we did, all the works that we've done, he knows those works, he's conscious of them, he's recorded them, and we will be, of course, rewarded for those. Um, it, those, however, are very solemn words uh, to say to a church, for the Lord is conscious of our works or excuse me, the lack thereof, those things that he has asked us to do that we haven't done, you know, the, the works that were wrongly done, the works that were done of the flesh or of self-righteousness instead of God-righteousness. He knows those works too. Fortunately, those works get burned up and are remembered no more at the judgment, that judgment I, I suggested to you. 1 Corinthians 3, 9 through 15. But he says, I know your works, your labor. Now this word labor is ergos, is where we get our word energy. And if you think about the Bible and the people that God raised up over time, you think about Moses or Abraham or Gideon or any of the people that God raised up, Peter, the disciples, they were all working when he, God found them, when he called them, right? Um, whether it was Gideon at the threshing floor, or Peter and his nets, or, you know, the people doing different things, but they were all working. He knows their works. He knows your works. He wants you to work for him, right? He wants us to labor for him. This word ergos is where, again, we get our word energy. You know, and I've got to ask a couple of questions. Are we using our limited energy for the Lord? Are we furthering the kingdom of God? How are we, how are we, when it comes to serving Jesus, what, what do we spend our energy on? When we get up in the morning, before we go to bed at night, what are we doing in that time frame be between that? Have we shared the gospel with even one person? Have we talked to anybody at all about the Lord? Have we mentioned him that day, right? So he wants us to use our energies for him. Are we investing our lives for the Lord? Now, guys, we only have one run at this thing. We all have limited time, limited energy, limited uh, in many different ways of our lives. And it's easy, I found, once I got over 50. Once I left um, full-time ministry, once I had left the church, it was easy to sit back and not do anything. It, it would have been very easy to do that, quite honestly. 
You know, you get to a place in life sometimes where you think you've earned a break. But I dare say that there's no such thing in the economy of God. There's just too great a need out here in this dark world. There's too great a need to hear the gospel of Christ. Um, and we might not be able to go, but maybe we can send someone else. You know what I mean? Even if we can't, we can enable. There's a thing in the book of Matthew called the prophet's reward. And it's a, an interesting side study sometime for you. But it basically says that he who enables the prophet receives the prophet's reward because you enabled the ministry that prophet did. So maybe you yourself can't do certain things, but you help with tithe. You help with prayer. You help in other ways, right? You're, you're, you're still engaged in the ministry, but in a different context than maybe what you used to be. So it wasn't just labor. I know your labor, your patience. This word patience is to bear up under great pressure. Acts 19.10 talks about the labor and the pressure that they bore up under. And because of it, all of Asia heard the gospel of Jesus Christ. It could have been hundreds of thousands, if not millions of people, heard about Jesus and heard that there was a way forward out of the darkness. That there was a name to the God. And he was personal and knowable, right? We could know his name and we could call out to him and he would answer that prayer and change us radically. You know, when people worship Diana, they went into this place and they would either take drugs or they would drink and they would do whatever they did sexually to worship this obscene thing, uh, this little idol that was sitting in there. That could the Bible tells in Isaiah that neither hears nor sees, that has arms but they don't move, that has feet but they don't walk, right? That has a head but it can't talk. So they went and worshiped that, but we serve a living, talking God. He talks to us through His Word, right? Mm -hmm. He talks to us in the quiet of our hearts, in the, in the still small voice, in the quiet of the night. I hear him talking to me. At first I thought it was Kathy talking in her sleep, but it wasn't, right? <laughs> the Lord wants to talk to us. He wants to talk to us. He's interested in us. He loves us with a love we cannot begin to comprehend and understand. Except we know it's the greatest love possible. So, not good. He didn't stop there. And that you cannot bear those who are evil. They're intolerance for evil. Um, there's a word kakos, K-A-K-O-S in Greek. Um, you cannot bear those who are evil. So what did they do with them? Well, think. I want you to think for a moment about your physical bodies. We have a nurse with us. If we have a physical body and there's a foreign object in the physical body, left untreated, what happens to that physical body part. It festers over the time it can rot and it can even die away and have to be amputated if it's not removed, right? If that thing is not removed. If it's a disease, we go to doctors to cure diseases because we know our immune system, I've heard it said, I don't know if this is true, that many of us carry many diseases around in us that are not active. They're dormant within us, but that our immune systems fight them off. And I don't know, does that sound right? 
It, it is or not? I don't think so. You don't think so? No. Now, I've heard uh, things like maybe mono cancer and, cells. I don't oh, know. Cancer cells? Maybe cancer cells. Oh, maybe cancer cells. I don't know. Cancer is a pretty bad disease. <laughs> but let's take <laughs> no. cancer. If I mean, there's a lot of other ones, though, too. I yeah. Well, I was more thinking about mono and things like that. Or measles, you know, you can communicate it without having, without catching it yourself. Things that we can give to others without ever experiencing on our own. But, but our body's immune system is an amazing thing, how it can fight things off. Well, the church has an immune system as well. We have an immune system called pastoral leadership and guidance. If there is a sickness in the disease, um, we're not to coddle those who live in unrepentant sin. We're not supposed to coddle those people. Unfortunately, many people in unrepentant sin stay in the church, never challenged, never leaving their sin. And they just grow in it, and it begins to infect the body. What is supposed to happen is that person is supposed to be confronted According to Romans 16, 17, we're supposed to go to that person in meekness and in love and give them the opportunity to change or leave. That's what's supposed to happen. That's what this church was doing. The, you know, they recognized that some people needed to be removed for the health of all because they're ripping apart the bride of Christ, right? That's what he was talking about here. Uh, you cannot bear those who are evil. You've tested those who say they are apostles and are not and found them liars. We're not supposed to have liars among us. We're supposed to speak the truth in love, right? We're not supposed to abide those who are liars. So what they did is they removed them. Um, and, you know, this whole thing about being liars was a discernment. You know, these guys were great, were discerning people. Um, they knew their scriptures. They did not fall for the lies of the enemy. As a matter of fact, there's a, there was a, a book written, uh, actually it was a series of work called the Didache, that the first century Christian fathers put together to test people who said they were Christian, who, who said they were apostles, to be able to prove if they were or not, right? And you can still find a copy of that, by the way. D-I-D-A-C-H-E, the Didache. Um, but that's what it was for. Acts 17, 11, uh, where Paul commends the Bereans for searching and to see if things were so. Because we're supposed to have discernment. We have discernment as a gift of the Holy Spirit through reading the Word of God, right? As we read the Word of God and study the Word of God, we learn what is true and what is not. And pretty soon we're able to instantly, hopefully, through God's um, guidance, understand what is true and what is not. So they had this incredible discernment. Um, and lastly, he continues in verse 3, you have persevered and have patience and have labored for my name's sake and have not become weary. Notice why they're doing their work. It's for his name's sake. You know, a lot of people in a lot of churches do a lot of work for the church's sake, for some pastor's sake, for their own sake, for their name, to get their name out there, to get their church's name out there. But work in the name of Jesus Christ is work that never fails and it never ends. You know, we're told that 
the word of the Lord will never return void, but always accomplishes what it was first sent to do. And that is work in the Lord. That is work in the name of Jesus. Work that is done in any other name will always fail. It always will fail. And yet many, many people do that. Now I want you to look at this list real quick. Now we're just going to talk about that. We're going to halt here just for a moment. And I want to talk to you about a church that has incredible works. They have incredible patience. They're intolerant of evil. They know their Bible. They're out there doing their stuff. They've got great discernment and their labor and patience is all in the name of Jesus Christ. What a great church. I mean, honestly, if we could find a church like this today, been around 30 years, had all these qualities, if the letter stopped here, we'd all go to it. Right? Everybody would go to this church. It's a fantastic church if the letter stopped here. But the letter doesn't stop here. Now, these were the commendations. But the Lord said in verse 4, Nevertheless, so in spite of all those good things, I have this against you, that you have left your first love. This one thing. This one thing. You know, you might sit back to yourself and say, wow. I've got this whole laundry list of good stuff and this one bad thing. Many Christians live their life this way, by the way. They have a big laundry list of all the good stuff in their minds. Who they are, they're a Christian, they go to this church, they believe for 10, 20, 50 years, whatever it is. You know, they've got all this great stuff happening over here. Maybe they can play on the worship team or speak in tongues or they have the gift of healing. They have all these good things over here, yet... They have one thing, this one thing that they won't change, that they never let go of, that they want to call some besetting sin as an excuse to keep on, hold on to it. You know, Jesus will forgive that sin on the day of judgment. He won't remember it anyway. What difference does it make? And yet what they're doing is destroying themselves, right? They're holding themselves back from all that God called them to be because they won't let go of that one thing. You know, here, the Lord is the one who moves in the church and has looked into the heart of the church and he's put his finger on something that if they don't change, it'll destroy them. Because you can labor, you can have all the patience in the world, you can bear with those, you can be persecuted. As a matter of fact, we can go to 1 Corinthians 13, and we can find there that if we're not doing things out of love, no matter what we're doing, it's a waste of our time. That's what the Lord is telling them. You've left your first love. Now, we can all understand first love. We've all had a first love. Remember when you were first loving you got that new boyfriend or that new girlfriend. i tell you how you tell if a young man has a, a new girlfriend. He goes and buys toothpaste. If he goes and buys toothpaste, this is the guy looking at a girl, right? <laughs> or he starts taking showers and smelling pretty, right? You remember first love. In first love, you can't wait to talk to your, your sweetheart, that one that you call sweetheart. You, and you use words like always and never. I'll always love you. I'll never go anywhere without you. Right? Later in life, when you get married, you've been married for many years, it's your spouse who says, you never, 
And you always, right? It changes. The language changes a little bit. And when it's in the first person, it's when it's young. Well, but you guys remember what puppy love is like. Remember when you first got saved? Remember that days? How you couldn't wait to find a Bible study. You couldn't wait to get in church. You didn't care if you had to drive an hour to get to church. You'd drive an hour to get to church. The very first thing you did and the very last thing you did is you talked to your Jesus. You'd be in a supermarket. You'd be asking Jesus, should I buy this milk or that milk? <laughs> because everything was about Jesus back then. Right? We all remember those days. That's what he's talking about. That romantic moment when you were saved. Mm -hmm. That time when it was all fresh and new. That's what he wants you to remember and to realize that many, many people have lost that. They've been a Christian so long that they've lost that first love. They forgot what it felt like. They're in churches now and they look up at the pastor and they start complaining. Isn't that the shirt he wore last week? <laughs> the worship music going and they'll, they'll hear the worship music and say, oh, how many courses are they going to do? Right? They start complaining. That's when you know that you've lost it. When you start complaining, whether it's your spouse or your church, when you start complaining, you're not in your first love anymore. Right? You've walked away from it. It's time to get back to it. It's time to get back. And here's the remedy, verse 5. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen. Remember what it was like. Use the God-given mind he has put on the top of your head for something other than to hold your glasses or to hold your earrings or your hat or whatever it is you got going on on your head. Right? Use it and remember what it was like. Go back in your mind. Hold on to it. Repent. That's to turn in the opposite direction. So if you're com today complaining, tonight, repent of it. Repent of that. Right? Change your mind about that. Um, and do the first works. Repent and do the first works. So that's return, or some people call it repeat. Or else I will come to you quickly and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. I want you to note one other thing here. Remember the old story about the couple? They've been married for many, many years. They're driving down. They're back in the country somewhere. And, you know, um, they're driving along, and they've had the same truck now for 30 years, right? And 30 years ago is when they were married. And 30 years ago when, they first, when he first got his pickup truck, and this was his girlfriend, you couldn't get a piece of paper between these two people. <laughs> there, there was no such thing as a seatbelt. If there was a seatbelt in the truck, it was around both of them at once because they were both in the same seat practically, right? <laughs> and his arm was all up around her and she was whispering little things in his ear when he drove and he kept telling her to stop. She was swerving on the road. Then over 30 years of time, they're driving down the road, they've been married 30 years, now one is way over there and one is over here driving, right? And the man 
actually the woman looks at the man and says, what's changed? You know, why are we way over here? Uh, you're way over there and I'm way over here. And he looks at her and says, well, I haven't moved. <laughs> the same is true in our relationship with Christ. Look again closely at the end of verse 4. You have left your first love. You didn't lose it. You didn't lose your first love. You left it. For those of us who have left our first love, either in a relationship or in our relationship with Jesus, it is because we left it. We turned around and walked away. I was interested in this Greek word. It is when it's a willful act of turning and leaving something. It's like I took out garbage before you guys got here. You're probably going to be glad I did because there was some nasty things in that garbage. <laughs> but I took it outside. I left it in the garbage can out there. Okay? Some people, that's what they do to their relationship with Jesus. They leave it in the garbage can. They leave it. They never look at it again. They put it in a drawer. I know people where I came from in West Virginia, their religion is their family Bible sitting on the coffee table. Mm. Right? That's the religion of that. And it's a shame because that's not what Jesus wants. He wants a loving relationship with us. So he tells us then that if we remember it, we repent from what we were doing today and we return to him and do those first works. Um, if we don't do that, he's going to remove the lampstand from its place. Remember, he's, this is a letter to a church. The church has lost its first love. The church is made up of individuals. If we as individuals all rekindle our relationship with Jesus, what happens to the churches we go to? They're suddenly rekindled, right? That's what he's talking about here. And unless they do, he's going to remove the lampstand. The church will die. And to play Paul Harvey for you, this church does die. Right? It does die. Um, it lives on for about another 60, 70 years, some people estimate, and died. Okay? But this I have, in other words, this you've gotten right, that you hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. Now, we don't know a lot. I don't know. Some of you ladies, and maybe you guys, did a little bit of study, and you found out about the Nicolaitans, I'm hoping. The Nicolaitans were a group of people. We don't know historically all there is to know about them, but we do know the word itself, nekao leos, means over the laity. It means the ruling class or the priest class that is set up over the church members. God hates that. Nobody comes between Jesus and his bride. Nobody. Would anybody come between you and your bride if you're married? Or you and your husband? I don't think so, right? We don't allow anybody to come between us and our family, right? Jesus feels the same way. Nekao, Laos, is the priest class. And when we get uh, a little bit further, three more letters down, we're going to see about the founding of a church founded on this concept of the priest class. Okay? And God hates that. He hates it. He hates it. Um, as a matter of fact, how many things, here's a quiz for you, how many things did Jesus say he hated? From Jesus' lips that he hated? Take a guess. How many things in the Bible? Anybody want to guess? 
one thing. This thing. This one thing is the thing he hates. He hates anybody coming between him and his bride. Now, God hates sin, of course, but Jesus' mouth said, I hate this. This is what we better hate, too, right? Love what he loves, hate what he hates kind of thing. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit said to the churches. So we all have ears. We can all hear what the Spirit is saying actively to the church. What's he saying? He's saying, return to your first love, repent from where you are today, and change your hearts. And here's a promise, to him who overcomes, I will give to eat from the tree of life, which is in the midst of the paradise of God. So we're going to talk about that a lot more when we get to chapters 21 and 22 um, about the tree of life. We're going to look at it in the Garden of Eden and compare it, you know, the restored Eden, if you will, um, in chapters 21 and 22. But this tree of life is growing in the new Jerusalem. It's there waiting for us. One day we will eat of its fruit, we're promised, okay? Um, and that is the closing of this first church. So let's close out in prayer. Then we'll have a quick time of uh, questions, okay? Father, we thank you for our time. Uh, as we open now to the question and answer period, uh, Lord, help us to, to answer to the best of our ability, knowing that you help us as well through your spirit. But we thank you for this book of Revelation, and we accept gratefully the promise that to he who reads and they who study, there is a special blessing. So we thank you for that. In Jesus' name, amen. 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 All right, questions? Questions, questions, questions. Anything over there? Not yet. Okay. But I have a question. Good. <laughs> so I'm looking this up, Nicolaitans, and it has a reference to Numbers 24, mm -hmm. 1 through 3. Can you explain that? Which says what? Well, I'm trying to get to it, but it's not letting me. Numbers 24? Yes, 1 through 3. Uh, oh, this is the era of Balaam. What they're talking right. about here, uh, Balaam, of course, um, well, I'll just read this section for you. Now when Balaam saw it pleased the Lord to bless Israel, he did not go as, uh, he did not go as at other times to seek to use sorcery, but he set his face toward the wilderness, and Balaam raised his eye and saw Israel encamped according to their tribes, and the Spirit of God came upon him. Then he took up his oracle and said, The utterance of Balaam, the son of Baor, the utterance of the man whose eyes are opened. All right. Oh, Numbers 24, you're saying? Yes. Oh, yeah, 24. That's where I was, wasn't it? Yeah. Yeah. So it's called the era of Balaam. Mm -hmm. The era of Balaam, this same guy caused um, people to sin. Uh, one of the one of the thoughts of who the Nicolaitans were is that they came. Now this is not church doctrine. 
This is, um, his, some historians feel that this is accurate, some church historians, but they think it was founded by Nicholas, one of the seven original deacons, if you will, mentioned in the book of Acts, along with Stephen, etc. But he was one of the seven that was named to help with the daily ministrations for the women and the orphans. And uh, that he rebelled and left the, the uh, church and set up his own religious thing and um, was able to draw many Christians with him or many people who professed faith with him. The heir of Balaam is basically the same thing. He's going to also be cursing Israel in another passage and trying his best to cause them to stumble, okay? And that was called the era of Balaam. And they think that uh, the Nicolaitans also utilized that same kind of thing, that Satan was trying to use the Nicolaitans as he used Balaam, you know, in the era of Balaam to make uh, the righteous to stumble. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. Good. So how does that relate to like the church at Ephesus? Well, because they hated the deeds of the Nicolaitans. But there's they, no other reference to that, right? To the Nicolaitans? Yeah, in, yes, Ephesus. in Ephesus. Not in Ephesus. No. Right. They were able to defeat it. Okay? They were able to defeat it. Um, and they were able to defeat it how, by the way? Anybody remember how? By the word of God. Mm. They were able to defeat the lies that the enemy sprung on them, right? We just studied that. You'll see it again in chapter 2, verse 15 mm -hmm. of the book of Revelations, mm -hmm. uh, when he's writing to Pergamon. Um, even though this was a compromising church, they also hated the deeds of the Nicolaitans, but... When we get to Thyatira, we're going to see that things change greatly by that time, historically. So eventually, the Nicolaitans were able to establish a priest class and marry it into the church. And we'll look at that. All right? Any other questions? Yes, ma'am. Okay. But you gotta speak loud. I don't hear a lot. All right. Um, the Church of Ephesus. Were they saved? The Church of Ephesus. Why, yeah, Ephesus. If were they saved because if, if they were saved, why would God say, "He who overcomes, He will give them to eat from the tree of life"? Remember, so, yeah. Remember this. This letter has different applications. It wasn't just for the church itself. It was also for the individuals. Churches don't have ears. People do. Right? So he's writing this also to people, to anyone who has an ear and is willing to listen and follows this recipe, if you will, to remember, repent, return to the first works. If you're able to do that and rekindle that love, he will have you eating from the tree of life in the midst of the Garden of Paradise. That's what he's saying here. So it's not just about Ephesus. 
it's also about individuals, not just at that time, but in our time as well, because we all have ears. Right. Okay, so the uh, tree of life is that, like... The tree of life is mentioned in Genesis and is mentioned in Revelation 21 20, and chapters 21 22. It's the tree that was taken um, and, and barred from, from Adam and Eve eating, lest they would eat of it and, die, and live forever in sin. If they died, they still could be saved. If they lived forever in sin, they couldn't be. So that's why God barred it to begin with. But in Revelation 21 and 22, when he finally opens it up, there's no more sinful behaviors that would taint somebody and poison them so that they could eat of the tree. So everybody that eats of the tree lives forever, right? God, and only pure and perfect people can do that. Anyone else? When he talks about overseers, it's like in the Catholic religion, would be of course your pope, your priest, and all that. And then, you know, they, I have a good friend that is, and you, you gotta go to the priest to be forgiven, and all that kind of stuff. That's kind of what they're sure. talking about, yeah. That's precisely what I'm gonna be talking about. Okay. That's exactly, when we get to the Church of Thyatira, oh. um, that's exactly what we'll talk about. And was that kind of a church where that morphed into Catholicism then? Yes. Okay. Well, if you think about where Catholicism started, and this is historically, this is not uh, ecumenically, this is according to, you open up history books and read it, it'll tell you about a guy named uh, um, Constantine who came yeah. into power. Right. And in 368, he came into power, and he was able to defeat the Rome, uh, the other person vying for Rome at that time, because he fought according to the sign in the sky, the cross in the sky, yeah, the sign of the right. cross. They won the battle, right? And because of that, and all his soldiers put that on their shields, nice. mm -hmm. they went into battle, they defeated the enemy, right. and gained Rome, and then all of the people in the Roman Empire who one day were worshiping Diana, the next day at the point of the sword by official edict, either were Christians or they were dead. They had a choice. And kathos is world, worldwide. That's what it means. The Roman worldwide church is literally what Roman Catholic Church means. That's where it came from. It came from the marriage of, <coughs> of uh, Constantine and the pagan churches at that time, the pagan temples, converting over into what they're labeling as Christianity at that time. Yeah. So one day you had a priest in the temple of Bacchus or Diana. The next day he was considered a minister under the name of Jesus. And he would have no idea what he was doing. And they began to marry in different things. And this is when um, the whole Nicolaitan thing was set up, when priest class uh, was set up, okay. and the Pope and all that sort of thing. Right. Okay. And various, various other things, you know, um, began to creep in over time. You know, when it first started, priests could marry, and then they couldn't. Yeah. You know, many things changed over the course of time. 
as it began to uh, spin further and further away from that beginning in Christ in the original church. But we're going to deep dive into all that. So they took a lot of things from the, <coughs> the worldly things and, and merged them. Absolutely. Yeah. That's what it seems like, like they worship. They still worship statues, the Statue of Mary. Sure they do. Yeah. And the Bible tells us that people who worship, Paul wrote, that people who worship and bow down in front of those things are actually worshiping demons. Now, they don't know that, but they are. I mean, God is not in a statue, you know? There's one Savior. There's no co-redemptrix. Mm -hmm. You know, there's no saint so-and-so who's going to help me do my homework or get home safely or go fight in a battle or whatever. A stone is a stone. A stone is a stone. A stone is a stone. All right. No more questions from... I'm looking. I don't see any questions popping up. All right, we're good? Well, God bless you guys. Thank you for putting up with it. One more week. <laughs> One more week. You're free. <laughs>